0: Right, Bar News Daily. Thanks for being here. So when I got my first radio job in AM radio, I also had to do some shifts on the FM station. My name was uh, Adam Smasher on what was the name of the station? Well, that so two stations. What was the name of the station? I forget, but it was Froggy One Hundred Four, and I was Pond James Pond. All the all the names were were frog puns. <laughs> Anyway, so I asked my, uh, my, my radio mentor, what was his name? I know his name. I'm trying to think. What it was. Hop and Harv. Hop, hop and Harv. I said, Hop and Harv, how long should I talk before the song? And he said, you should talk for as long as you are better than the song. But as soon as the song is better than you, you got to cut it, cut it out, cut it off, move on to the song. So in that spirit, we're going to play two interviews for you today. The second is the rabbi that the president of Argentina met with when he came to America yesterday. He came to America on a spiritual journey and met with this rabbi. What was that about? And that was the first thing he did before he met with any government officials. So we talked to that rabbi. We'll play that interview in a minute. We also talked with Oliver Lane, who's amazing. He's the Breitbart London correspondent. Gives all the insight about... Uh, Ireland that we need to know and, and the, the real turn Well, it's not even a change of the people or a turn to the people. The people have always been against mass immigration in England and, and most of Europe, but now they've finally had enough of it. So we talked about Ireland, but I want to play for your here, Madine, He's the Breitbart tech editor uh, about a couple of different technology related stories. First and foremost, the fact that the government can now uh, is, is now the White House is now White House is a very important part of the story, not Congress. White House is collecting all phone records and turning it into metadata to find out everything that can be known about your life. Fitting into the theme that the greatest threat to citizens today are Western governments turning against their own citizens. And here's another example of that. So we'll start off with Colin Medine, then we'll talk to the rabbi on Breitbart News Daily. I want to go to Colin Medine, who is the Breitbart Tech Editor. Colin, how are you doing, sir? I'm
1: doing great. How are you this morning? Really
0: good. Got a couple uh, stories for you. Before we get to the main story on Breitbart.com yesterday, uh, we were going to, and we will tomorrow, though. We're going to play a clip of um, the new CEO of OpenAI, ChatGPT. There was a podcast he did about five months ago where he said that there is a he gives a 5 to 50% chance that AI, which he's now one of the top the head of the top AI company, uh, has five to fifty percent chance of not only total destruction of all humanity, but destruction of all value in the light cone. <laughs> it's like a full obliteration right. of all existence. It gives about a five to fifty percent chance. Uh, where are you in that uh, that ranking?
1: Well, that's a really tough question to answer. The reason is uh, it depends how stupid humans are and how we work with AI. So, Very. You know, if we listen so to enough, 100% chance. Uh, uh, <laughs> exactly, right. You know, if we listen to enough Breitbart radio and, and read Breitbart every day, and you read about the government and the economy, um, that chance creep, creeps up, you know. But uh, <laughs> put that in perspective, um, just yesterday uh, there was reports that the Pentagon is considering allowing uh, AI to make the decision to kill people or not, you know, give drones the ability to fire their own missiles, for example. Um, Ten years ago, even five, six, seven years ago, this was sacrosanct. You know, uh, Russia was considering this, and everyone was freaking out. Suddenly, 2023, Ukraine hit people with autonomous drones, and now the Pentagon is saying, gee, maybe this is a good idea. Apparently, these people haven't seen the movie Terminator because that's Pretty
0: much the plot. (laughs) Well, that's amazing. So, what an example of how we outsource more and more to this artificial intelligence without any question as to uh, losing our humanity and soul in the process. I want to talk about this White House program, but just to stay on this topic, uh, great article on Breitbart.com the other day about this AI girlfriend, Karen AI. Mm -hmm. Tell us about this guy. Yeah,
1: well, you know, Karen AI is actually based on a real girl, uh, an influencer on social media who decided to turn herself into an AI copy um, to make even more money from, from lonely men, essentially. So the plan was working great. They were making millions of dollars. And then suddenly it went offline. And the reason it went offline, Mike, is the CEO, who was keeping the servers running, of, uh, you know, this company she partnered with uh, went to jail for arson. So suddenly, you know, there's this major outcry of uh, of men who can't reach their AI girlfriends. And, you know, Whoa. the tendency from, from us and the audience and us at Breitbart is to kind of laugh at these guys. You know, you want to talk about major uh, societal problems when, when men and women no longer feel the need to find a boyfriend or girlfriend because they have an AI to pretend to be their boyfriend or girlfriend. You know, all sorts of bad things happen, right? Uh, among other things, you way to see that uh, that birth rate in America when, when everyone's girlfriend is a, is in their cell phone, right?
0: Whoa, whoa. So this article says that they were she was expected to make as much as five million a month.
1: <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's uh, that's probably a conservative estimate. If she had done it, uh, you know, with a with a non psychotic partner, <laughs>
0: <laughs> five million a month. So what would guys do? They would just text her stuff, and and this AI text would write back in her voice.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's like uh, you know, uh, it's going to chat with you. It's you know, it's going to be a it's going to let you pretend that you have this ongoing relationship.
0: Wow, I wonder how far you can sure. take it. And I wonder how far guys do take it.
1: right? I, I bet, well, I bet they,
0: the AI can really act like your actual girlfriend.
1: Mike, they take it incredibly far because, you know, this is, we tend to think of these things as isolated because, like, this is an AI story. It's really not. If you look at, you know, the bend of the internet right now, there's men who pretend only fan models are their girlfriends by sending them literally tens of thousands of dollars a month. So, you know, these are all related things. They're all very yeah. damaging to society. We don't want men and women, because this is a problem for women, too, pretending that they have a significant other who's either, you know, in the case of OnlyFans, frankly, you're chatting with men on the other side of the world pretending to be the girl or an AI <laughs> pretending to be a girl. Both yeah, which are is worse. equally damaging.
0: Yeah, yeah which, which is worse. Um, all right, let's table this for a minute, because uh, we're going to talk about the soul coming up in the next segment uh, with, actually, how about this? The, the pre- new president of Argentin- Argentine? Argentine, he uh, was just in Queens visiting the graveside of a rabbi, and his new spiritual mentor is a rabbi, uh, and we're going to talk to him coming up in a little bit, and he wrote a whole book about the importance of the soul. So this, uh, that's a perfect tie into that. So let's just table that for a minute. Uh, the main topic on brightpart.com yesterday, headline, White House Surveillance Program, Let's law enforcement snoop on trillions of American phone records. So what is the story? And then I'm going to give you the, uh, the devil's advocate to it.
1: Sure. Well, <clears throat> the story is the White House, since the Obama years, and they claim off and on, but, you know, anytime the government claims to be doing something off and on, it's really on, right, has run this program. In coordination with AT&T, although, you know, personally, I would argue that most of the other phone companies probably have similar programs that would allow law enforcement agencies to access heaps and heaps and tons and tons, unimaginable amounts of phone records. And this goes back to a concept called metadata. Do you really need to listen to someone's phone calls when you know who they called, what day they called, how long they talked? You know who those people are talking to. It's a concept that they've really nabbed from Silicon Valley. You know, Silicon Valley's built on surveillance capitalism, spying on people all the time. So this government program is saying, hey, we can spy on people's phone calls by listening, by understanding everything about that phone call except, you know, what what they would what they're actually saying because that's a wiretap and that needs a, a court mm-hmm. order. So you know, the troubling things from my perspective. Uh, as, a, as a tech expert, someone who normally watches how you know, governments and corporations overstep the bounds, Mike, is this idea that, um, <clears throat> firstly, it's run out of the White House, so there's no Freedom of Information Act uh, availability to find out what they're really doing, and that's obviously on purpose. And secondly, it has all the earmarks of a program that's run wildly out of control. Um, you know, like many things in our lifetime, Mike, instead of the Patriot Act, it was started, and they said, okay, this is for drug investigations. We want to stop drugs from coming into America. We're going to use this advanced technology to do it. Now you have postal inspectors, parole agents, local cops being able to go to this program and get uh, information on all sorts of people, and they probably have your information, Mike, and they probably have information from everyone listening to me right now because it's not a matter of saying, this person is a crook. Let's get all their phone data. It's saying, hey, let's let's look at this social network. You know, let's look at all the people who interact with this person. So if they call a lawn service to get their, their lawn cut once a week, who's that lawn service talking to? You know, that, that's the problem I have with it is it's not let's take Al Capone and figure out everything he's doing on his cell phone. It's uh, what are all these other people doing? And once you have local cops, parole agents, et cetera, doing it, you you have every level of government you know, nosing in the business that they have no that they have no reason to be nosing into.
0: Yeah, the theme of the week—it's only Tuesday—but the theme of the week so far has been Western governments turning against their own people, acting like their own citizens are the problem. Ireland being a good example of that. So, so this is an example of that, Why, why you know, uh, tracking everyone's phone calls, et cetera. But, uh, but Colin, and I think this is most conservatives would even say this, Colin, maybe not most of the Breitbart audience, but most conservatives would say, what's the big deal? I have nothing to hide.
1: You know, Mike, that's, that's a – I used to say that a lot myself, right? Mm-hmm. But the problem with that argument is we think we have nothing to hide because we are law abiding citizens who go through our day and pay taxes and, and follow the law and to make the world a better place, you know, et cetera, et cetera, right? That argument fails when you look at the behavior of our government, you know, year after year. Whether it's, you know, we need to hire a zillion new IRS agents to go after people who make Venmo transactions of four hundred dollars. And by the way, we need those agents to be armed you know, or by millions of rounds of ammunition for them, uh, or whether you look at J6, you know, uh, things like that, the government decides if you have nothing to hide, not you. Mm-hmm. Okay. And the government decides when you're a criminal, unfortunately our system seems to have been twisted to the point where they're a criminal, where we are criminals when they decide we are. And in that sort of environment, uh, you know, I, and I think this holds true for most of Breitbart's audience. It's no thank you. You know, you you leave my area, you get out of my business. And furthermore, you know, like I said, if you look at the way they act with this program, they know they shouldn't be doing this. It it has to be run out of the White House to protect it from FOIA. Um, some of the some of the source documents, uh, source reporting we were looking at for this story. You know, we're saying things like the government would put out notices on this saying, you know, do not mention this program in official documents. And the reason is they don't want anyone to know about it. And they've done their best for more than a decade to keep it silent. That wouldn't be the case if it was, you know, the above the aboard, the G-men or the good guys kind of approach that I had in my youth, for example.
0: Yeah, such a good point. That's that's the argument. It's you don't even know how much you really do have to hide. It's like, oh, I have nothing. Hi, what's the big deal? Rifle through all my stuff. It's like, oh, you don't even realize what they can do with all this information. And and, and if they want to get you, they will now. And they have another means of doing that. It's amazing. We only got about a minute. What what can one learn from this data? What could the White House learn with metadata of phone records?
1: Virtually anything, Mike. They can learn your weaknesses, you know. A classic case of a metadata call would be is if someone reached out from your house to a suicide prevention line. They know a tremendous amount about you. They they know that you might be on medications. They know you might be doing this, doing that. Think about all the the phone calls we make as Americans uh, in a in a culture that runs on the phone and runs on the internet. All our doctors, all our lawyers, all our business you know everything is done this way. So what do they know about you? They know everything.
0: Yeah, they really do. You can, like, if you, if you just follow the Google records of someone Googling anything about being pregnant or, you know, any, anything related, you can learn all about that. And then someone Googles, like, um, you know, what is a miscarriage or something, right? And it's like, oh, like, right. yeah, I know everything about your life now. I got, I'm totally tuned in now. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah,
1: Google uses this to make billions and billions of dollars and the government uses it to be very intrusive and, and sort of likely you know, try to subvert our
0: rights. That's it. Uh, Colin Medina, Breitbart tech editor. Well done, Colin, thanks for uh, following all of this for us. Have a great day. Appreciate you, man. Uh, no one else does. Gosh, the Breitbart people are just the best. Thanks for listening to Breitbart News Daily. This is the rabbi that the president of Argentina met with when he came to America yesterday. He came to America before he talked to any any leaders, any, any political leaders, he talked with this rabbi. Here he is. The new president of Argentina, Malay, He's a, a Trump-like figure, libertarian guy, famous for uh, that, that, uh, that video where he rips off the wall uh, all these departments, there's, there's all these departments written on a whiteboard, like magnets on a whiteboard, and he rips them off. He's like, Department of Women, afuera! Department of Ministry, afuera! Department of Education, Indoctrination, afuera! And <laughs> out, 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 rips them off the wall. He won, a, I'd, I'd call this a landslide, for a president in Argentina, which is 140% inflation. Could you imagine 140% inflation? We We had like 12%. <laughs> imagine 140%. Uh, And Argentina used to be one of the wealthiest nations in the world. So this guy who won is a bit wacky. I think he would say that. Wild hair. He used to campaign dressed up as a superhero. And he would campaign with a chainsaw. As he's like cutting government spending. So this guy won. And his first trip to America, I think his first international trip was to America. And before he met with any officials, he went to the grave site of a man in Queens. Now The gravesite was of a well-known rabbi who passed away in 1994. Now Malay, he grew up Catholic and reports are saying he's contemplating or he's in the process or something of converting to Judaism. Now it's worth noting that Hamas held 21 Argentinians hostage after their terrorist attack in October. They had 21 Argentinians, one of the highest uh, nations uh, beyond Israel. There's 220,000 Jewish people in Argentina, uh, one of the largest Jewish populations in Latin South America. They had a few, they've had a few terrorist attacks against Jews there. In 1992, there was a bombing at the Israeli embassy in Argentina. And then in 1994, there was a car bombing at a Jewish community center, killed 85 people. And as a lot of leaders in this region have spoken out against Israel, The new president of Argentina said he's going to move the embassy to Jerusalem. I couldn't be more pro Israel. His next trip after America is to Israel. And he said it's more of a spiritual journey than anything else. Also, one other interesting dynamic is the the pope is from Argentina too. something else to throw in. So when he was in America, the president of Argentina met with Rabbi Simon Jacobson, who's become a bit of a, a spiritual leader for the president of Argentina. And Rabbi Simon Jacobson of the Meaningful Life Center is with us right now. Rabbi, how are you, sir?
2: Thank you very much. I'm very well. And How are you?
0: Doing really good. I'm grateful you're here. How did you get in touch in the first place with the new president of Argentina?
2: It's called uh, serendipity. <laughs> <laughs> Around two months ago, uh, to be exact, it was September 10th. I looked it up on the calendar the other day. I, uh, I got a call from a colleague of mine and said that the candidate, he's an underdog, the candidate for the presidency of Argentina, he's coming to New York, he's coming to visit the gravesite to get a prayer uh, for his uh, for his uh, candidacy. And he thought it would be a good idea. He'd meet me. I'm an author of a book called Toward Meaningful Life. Uh, so I, I am, uh, I guess, a communicator. I know how to convey... A vision, uh, an idea. Of what is a leader? So the guy felt it would be a good idea for me to meet him. So we met in an office here in Brooklyn, um, and uh, and I presented him with my book in Spanish. He was very thankful, and uh, I never saw him before. I didn't even know about him, and then we started talking, and he was like his eyes like lit up. He was so like taken by the whole idea of a spiritual vision for the world. That's not just a political vision. It was taken by especially a process that I was involved in as a, as as a observant Jew. On the Sabbath and the holidays, we don't write, we don't take notes, and we don't record. So when I would listen to my teacher, this rabbi, we're talking about his gravesite, Rabbi Schneerson, known as the Rebbe. So we would have to rem- we would have to um, memorize verbatim hours and hours of these talks. And he was like, I saw uh, Malay the president-elect Malay, his eyes lit up. And I just felt the type of kindred spirit here. You know, sometimes people just have an instinct. And he told me he's not Jewish, but he's taken by this. And I signed a book, and that was that. I didn't know if I'd hear from him again, (laughs) to be honest. Then the next thing I know, someone sends me a clip from Argentinian television, and he's talking about his meeting with me and the impact it had on him. And fast forward last week, I get a note that he's president, been elected president, like you said, in the landslide. And then and then a day later, I get a call from one of his aides. He wants to talk to me, wants to thank me. So he calls me Saturday night, and he says, I want to thank you. I'm so touched by your blessings and by your, you know, I also recorded a video congratulating you. And I'm coming Monday morning to New York, to the gravesite. I'd like to meet with you. And that's the story, my son. <laughs> It's I know it sounds odd. It's like you think I have a long-term relationship with him, but we really <laughs> hit it off. And it's just a – it's part of the, the, I guess, the bizarre nature of this whole uh, this whole exercise.
0: This world though. So, <laughs> exercise is one way to put it. Yeah, this whole world we're in. And, the, um, and well, when picture, we met,
2: you have to see, when he met, he started crying. Like, totally. That's what I was going to ask.
0: The picture on Breitbart.com is he's sobbing. When he sees you, Rabbi.
2: I know. <laughs> I've made people cry, but for different reasons. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I want to... No. So many, I have and, so many... And everybody thinks like we're well, like a fine friend, but you know, there's, I'm sure you know, I mean, your listeners will know. There's a thing called the kindred spirit. You know, you meet someone, you suddenly have a connection. It doesn't always make sense, but it's there.
0: Yeah, it's good. Uh, I have a lot of big questions. Maybe we'll go there now and we'll swing back around. Uh, sure. There's, there's no question that we need spiritual answers to the problems of our day today. And I know in your book you talk a lot about the soul, and I want to get to that too. But what's the difference between a political vision of a nation and a spiritual vision of one?
2: Okay, great question. I would define a political uh, vision as well as an economic vision and all the other visions that governments are supposed to provide for their people as being more survival. You know, how do we create a uh, healthy economy? Uh, we create services, utilities, I- insurance, you know, all the things that a uh, a decent civilization needs. But it's all about existence. It's not about purpose. When you talk about spiritual vision, you're focusing on helping people discover what's their mission, their calling in this world. And that, I think, is tremendously lacking. You know, we may have good administrators, we have good firefighters you know, in the sense where we know how to put out fires and we know how to manage. Even I'm not saying in every case it's plenty of corruption. But vision means, you know, you feel inspired, you listen to this leader, you feel, My life is going somewhere. It's worth investing in the moral and um and uh, and ethical standards of my life and the life of my community. And you don't really hear that voice very rarely these days. And I think, really, uh, President Millet, President-elect Millet, he senses that. I think that's what he means by going on a spiritual journey. I think that's why he came to New York. I think it's not as crazy as people think. It's not like, oh, you know, he's some type of cult figure. He's going for a prayer. He's an intelligent man. And uh, those antics can be somewhat, uh, as you said, contrarian, disruptive. But he's a thoughtful person, and I think he realizes— that, what he can do here is provide that type of spiritual vision, which can lead a country like Argentina, that has suffered so much in so many ways, to a new place. But if you don't offer that, people will not um, be behind you. It's yeah. almost like what Churchill became during World War II a voice of, of uh, a strong voice of fortitude. We're going to prevail. We stand for a certain moral certainty. And that's something I think the world is really, really desperate for.
0: There's no question. That's a great answer. So, so political and economic answers are about survival, but there's a big difference between surviving and thriving. And really, we're really good at surviving, but what good is that? (laughs) What good is that if we're depressed and anxious and suicidal and checked out and all these other things?
2: Exactly. Look, we have we have a high standard of living. I mean, the comfort zones. But look at the opioid crisis. Look at other crises that people are desperately looking for some type of transcendental and some type of spiritual meaning in life. And uh, you know.
0: Where did it go? Where did purpose go? Well, I think
2: comforts, you know, I mean, yes. talk about as Americans or general, the Western world, the prosperity that followed World War II is a great blessing, and especially in contrast to the, the nightmare of last, uh, the last of World War II and I think that comfort zones also tend to have another side. We become apathetic, we become complacent, um, and as a result, our values get uh, lost in a way. you know I see you know most young people, especially when they see wars, they, the last war they fought was a video game or a football uh, uh, you know attended a football game. A real real life and death, thank God we were protected from. So suddenly when we're thrust and we hear what's happening in Ukraine and then now in the Middle East and Israel and so on, I think most of us are just not prepared. And uh, I think Warren Buffett put it well. <laughs> he said, until the tide is out, you don't know who's been swimming naked. You know? Um, <laughs> so in a way, and, and he speaks about it economically, but the same is true, I think, with value systems. And and uh, so I don't know if I can blame one person here, but what happens is, is that we tend to lull into a type of reverie of comfort, complacency,
0: apathy. Yeah. I uh, was talking to Ben Stein two weeks ago. And he was talking about how comfortable life is in a good way. He said he's in his pool and he's swimming in the backyard and there's palm trees. In it. And I said, can life be too comfortable? And he said, no, 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 it can't be. What are you talking about? He like, got kind of like mad at me. And I was like, oh, well, you know, it can make people weak. And he goes, well, my son did commit suicide last month because he was at this is what he said he said he was at the end of a non-stop fountain of money from his mother and me and he said well i guess you can be too prosperous then i was like oh geez i had no idea i didn't know that i didn't know that. i didn't mean to go there
2: um wow Wow. but
0: Yeah, yeah
2: there you go that captures it better than anybody i mean look at that type of tragedy and he he didn't even know he kept saying nothing wrong being too comfortable and and he suffered such a tragedy. Yeah, yeah. It took, it took
0: like it took like two minutes of him kind of like mad, not mad at me, but like no, no. What do you mean? What do you, like,
2: prosperity's great. Like I'm here. I'm
0: in my pool. Like he, and he finally got around it. Um. So yesterday we did a segment on depression among kids, and and the New York Times wrote a great article about how you know we should stop just medicating kids, and uh, we haven't given kids the tools to cope with life. Instead, we just call everything a diet. We every, we diagnose everything as an illness and and medicate. And it was it a was like good article, like, but it ended with, oh, the solution is we need to give kids less homework. We need to hire more therapists and we need to give kids, we need to start school later so they can sleep more. <laughs> like, oh, like, okay, sure. But that's not even close to the answer here. And no one rabbi ever talks about the soul. And you talk a lot about Absolutely. it in your book. What is the soul?
2: look it's, it, it actually brings me to tears when I hear these these stories. Obviously we see it every day. but the human being is fundamentally not the, like they say, we're not physical beings on a spiritual journey. We're spiritual beings on a physical journey. Yes, a soul is compared to a flame, and a flame is a very good analogy because a flame is one of the only physical objects that, that never rests. It's always restless, it's mm-hmm. flickering, it seeks something. So, a soul is essentially a part of every human being. That sense that we're not satisfied with animal bliss, with just comfort. Exactly as you put it, we cannot just be comfortable. We we have to be driven by something. Now, hopefully, we're driven by by uh, positive goals. But look at a human being. Look look at us. We've changed the world through technology, through um, medicine, and so many ways because we're not satisfied. You look at an animal in the wild. They're fine. They live in the same habitats. They have no uh, cell phones. They have no, uh, you know, uh, all the technologies we have. So there's something about the human spirit that seeks and longs for something, and we must have that. And if we don't satisfy it in healthy ways, we'll satisfy it in unhealthy ways. And if you don't feed that part of the person, it's like literally depriving a person of food and drink, the body needs food and drink and exercise and rest and hygiene. And the soul needs purpose. It needs meaning. It needs uh, feeling significant. It needs it needs love. You know, all those values that we talk about is something that the soul thrives on. And when it doesn't thrive, and it doesn't get, it doesn't is not fed and not um, nourished, it will have many consequences, including many of the problems we see today.
0: Yes, our souls are deprived. We, uh, I want to. We'll talk about the the rabbi whose gravesite the president of Argentina visited in a moment, but one of his lines that you quote in his book is, men can never be happy if he does not nourish his soul as he does his body. So what are Absolutely. ways that one can nourish one's soul?
2: Well, um, I, I like to refer to a spiritual SPA. SPA is an acronym for uh, study, prayer, action. Essentially, in psychological terms, cognitive, emotional, and behavioral conditioning. That every day, literally, just as you eat and drink and exercise, you exercise your mind to read something spiritual that lifts up your uh, whole being mindset to a higher place, not just reading the financial um, reports or immediate news, but something more transcendent. And then there's prayer, which is like an emotional form of conditioning. You could read a poem, sing a song, something that speaks to your heart and warms and uh, inspires you and then actions literally good acts of kindness gratitude saying thank you the basics and you know, behavioral uh be- behavioral conditioning in that sense refines us as well and i think if a person has a, a steady diet of these every day every person on their own level that's nourishing yourself it's uh it's pretty
0: straightforward but you have to do it you know <laughs> i think you gotta do it um <laughs> My, se- my seven-year-old son just, the other day, said, why do we go to church every week? I said, well, same reason you take a shower every day. What do you mean? Like You got to go. You got to go nourish the soul. Uh, that's one way to do it, the weekly. Well, so
2: the problem is often that people don't see the relevance. You know, taking a shower or eating breakfast, everybody understands. But the spiritual needs, we're not trained in school yeah. and even in the media. We're not t- taught that these are important things. So you tend to lax off. And then we wake up. Sometimes once uh, things are problems, that's why when there's crisis, when there's a tragedy, suddenly there's a wake-up call. You know, you'll see people will and seek out answers for meaning, purpose.
0: Yeah, psychology literally means the study of the soul, yet psychologists don't speak of the soul. Like, what do we do with that? Um, We're talking with. uh, Rabbi Simon Jacobson. The book is called Towards a Meaningful Life. He uh, has become close friends, a bit of a spiritual mentor to the new president of Argentina who was in America the other day and met with uh, our rabbi friend here. Um, I was watching uh, this clip the other day of the founder of the website Twitch. Are you familiar with Twitch, Rabbi?
2: I have heard of it, yes. I'm not familiar with the founder. but
0: uh, Yeah. So, this, it's a website where kids watch, I guess adults do, watch other people play video games. Do you spend a lot of time on Twitch, Rabbi? No, I don't. You don't? You're not playing Call of Duty in yeah. <laughs> your free time?
2: Uh, no, said I'm not. Involved.
0: Okay, <laughs> I agree. So, the CEO of Twitch said, uh, We realized that we could grow and get people addicted uh, because all people wanted. All our users wanted, all of our streamers, what they wanted was fame, love, and money. So every feature we added had to somehow accentuate fame, love, and money. Are those soul-nourishing things, Rabbi?
2: (laughs) Did he mean love or did he mean sex?
0: Uh, That's a great point. Uh, I think he meant literally like, a better word would be like uh, attention. Uh, no, it's not even attention. It was like little likes or messages or appreciation. That was kind of it. It was more like messages of, hey, I love watching your stream or keep up the great work, that kind of appreciation.
2: Well, I'm very saddened to hear that. Uh, no, none of them are soul nourishing. They're all what we'll call uh, basically instant gratification, okay? Fame, love, and, uh, and money. They don't last. They're not permanent. Ask the same people, they say, are the things that you want, your legacy in life, the mark you want to make in this world, are they connected with those three things? The answer is absolutely not. If you talk about love as the love you give to others, the love of your family, the love of your country, the love of your values, I don't think that's what he's referring to.
0: No, no. He's, yeah, you're right. That's, that's It's not that. giving love. It's receiving the love. Exactly. exactly. And the same thing with fame and money. And,
2: uh, and obviously, these are extremely um, seductive of powers, and that's what, how he gets the attention. That's how he wants his audience to get addicted, as, as you put it. But um, if you ask me what the three things that I would say that are transcendent or soulful, I would say meaning and purpose. I would say love, the giving of love, and, and service. How are you helping the world be a better place? I wish that I would speak to the, the, the founder of Swiss and say, those are also needs of a person. Why don't you figure out a way how to monetize that?
0: You know? <laughs> yeah, well, now he's the CEO of ChatGPT. So uh, he is oh, one of the most powerful okay. people in the world. So if you, if you could be with him too, uh, as well as the president of Argentina, that would be superb. Uh, my last question about your book, Rabbi, and then we'll, uh, last question about the president. Um, why don't you take on this? Because in your book, you talk about uh, birth and death. And I can't articulate this well, so I want to ask you, but I saw the other day on Breitbart.com, Paris Hilton. She had a second baby, had a second baby uh, with a surrogate. And she said, I want a family so bad. It's just the physical part of doing it. I'm just so scared. Childbirth and death are the two things that scare me more than anything in the world. There's something really important about that sentence. And I can't quite put my finger on it, but like that is a, like, like, uh, frighteningly uh, insightful point uh, uh, recognition of the era we live in, <laughs> and I don't know why yet. But what do you make of that sentence?
2: Yeah, well, first time I ever hear association of childbirth and death. Um, that's like. Uh, I mean, my first, uh, my first knee-jerk reaction is that she is, sounds to me very self-consumed. And by her, anything that's a little painful or uncomfortable frightens her. Um, you know, we all, life, there's nothing in life that's worthwhile talking about that doesn't come with some pain, with mm-hmm. some price. Um, so I understand death. Many people are afraid of death. But, if, but I understand her fear of childbirth is more the pain that she'll go through. At uh, to give birth to a child. So my, if I was speaking with her, I would say, and I would think this is also a commentary, as you said, on uh, the way we look at things. We are so consumed, we're so obsessed with our own immediate comfort zones that as soon as you hear something is going to somewhat cause you a little discomfort, people run to other directions. So I see it part of the part of the maladies of our materialistic society, to be honest. And the answer has to be the birth of a child is the only thing you'll ever do in your lifetime that will give birth to another generation, that will create something that's eternal. Everything you do, no matter how much money you make, how much pleasure you have, will all die. If you're really afraid of death, the best way to, bring, to, to, to deal with that is to bring life into the world. Yeah, just,
0: yeah great answer. Uh, Rabbi, what's your hope? for the president of Argentina, and perhaps for all of us as well, if there's any crossover.
2: Yeah, well, being a uh, a suffering uh, romantic or optimist, I feel <laughs> it this way. Um, you know, we live in a world full of chaos. I mean, now, with what's going on in Israel, Gaza, and of course, in Ukraine, and just in general, like I mentioned before, there's a real, I would say, bankruptcy in the world of leadership. I would hope and pray. And I said this to the president uh, yesterday when I met him. I would hope that he can serve as a beacon of light, not just Argentina, and obviously clean up the mess there, the, the, the corruption, the inflation, and so on, but to be a beacon of light of what it means to be a moral leader, what it means to be, as I said, to empower people. I think people are desperate for something that, of hope, that there's a better future. And not just with the better technologies or better AI or but my life, my family life, my personal life, my my children, because we're definitely spiraling into a state of either collective depression. I mean, just look at the amount of uh, medication people take. Look at the mental issues, the mental health issues, the amount of therapy. And God bless everyone. But it's really all Band-Aids, and it's not, it's not de- it's dealing with symptoms, not with the roots. So I would hope that he could be an example, and other leaders in other countries will learn from him. You know what? We don't need to just keep the status quo as it is. It's time to disrupt it in a good way. We're not talking about doing anything that is offensive necessarily. Disrupting the status quo that we can hire moral standards of the spiritual vision, yes, the spiritual vision of life that people feel wow, there is something to look forward to not just to survive, but to thrive.
0: Tremendous. Uh, How'd you get so good at memorizing stuff, Rabbi?
2: (laughs) Well one of the secrets is learning how to listen. You know, listening means you have to shut down your uh, temptation to process information and to always have an opinion. Mm. Just like you have to empty it. Look at little children. Like a dry sponge, they can absorb information. And to memorize really requires being almost like a childlike innocence. Where you put aside all your knowledge and all your brilliance and you just listen. Just listen. And when you do that, you could absorb a lot more than you would ever imagine.
0: It's hard for me to put aside my brilliance, Rabbi. You know, It's a lot of work.
2: Okay. you, 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 can, you, so you have a bright future ahead of you?
0: <laughs> or not. Or not. Uh, it's my humility, though, that's really try getting me out. ahead.
2: Someone you love. Next time you have a disagreement with someone, put aside your opinion. I'm not saying you have to change your mind, but put aside your opinion and listen closely to what the other person says. It's an excellent exercise in humility and in uh, and in actually in growth as well.
0: The book is "Towards a Meaningful Life," Rabbi Simon Jacobson. Uh, Rabbi, uh, congratulations, well done, uh, and, and I and I look forward to your future relationship with the president of Argentina and how this can change the world.
2: Thank you so much. Thank you for having me, and uh, God bless you and all your audience, and maybe merit to see real peace in this world for all of us.
0: Shalom. Thank you, sir. On tomorrow's show, we're going to talk with a congressman from California. He uh, represents a, a district in Southern California up in the mountains uh, about a ICE detention facility that is at 0.4% capacity. <laughs> That's got to be like there's three people in it. Yet uh, we have you know mass wave of immigrants, but we have this detention facility with no, no people in it. What's going on there? We'll talk with the congressman tomorrow on Breitbart News Daily. Mike Slater, spread the word.
1: Whoa.